You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. All right, well, good morning, all you friendly people. Good, good morning. <laughs> good morning. Uh, good morning. Good to see you again. My name's Jeff. There you go. Thank you. Oh. You didn't have to do that. Uh, yeah, I know. Um, good to see you. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Hey, if this is your first time at Creekside, welcome. We are so glad that you would choose to join us for worship this morning. If it is your very first time, we'd love to offer you a gift this morning, a tumbler or a sippy cup or a water bottle, any of those you'd like. That's our gift to you, and you can go get that over at the info desk after the service. If you'd like more information about our church, Uh, Or if there is something we can be praying about for you, there is a slip in the seat back in front of you. You can take that, fill it out, put it over in the offering slot, which is right over there. Uh, I got a lot to talk about this morning because I haven't preached in a month. And whenever that happens, I just, it all builds up. I got a lot to dump on you this morning. So I'm excited to be back with you and so grateful that we got to have our men's retreat this year. Just got back from that. Uh, I will speak for all the men and saying... How awesome it was to be together, just so life-giving. And uh, men, you know, you don't have to do this, but just a reminder, September 30th through October 2nd next year, uh, you know, September 30th through October 2nd next year, you might want to take out your phone, September 30th through October 2nd next year. Put it in, in fact, put it in your shared calendar if you're married, September 30th through October 2nd next year, we'll be having that retreat uh, would love to see. Same week every year, guys, okay? So don't say I didn't warn you. Uh, grateful to be together. Grateful to continue our, our series in James this morning. Some things don't go together. They just don't. Oil and water don't go together. Drinking and driving don't go together. Social media and productivity don't go together. In fact, some things are great on their own. They're just terrible together. I I love brushing my teeth because that feeling afterwards, right? Ah, that's the best taste in your mouth, isn't it? And I love drinking freshly squeezed orange juice. That's just so good. Have you ever had freshly squeezed orange juice after you've brushed your teeth? It's kind of like vomiting in your mouth, right? It's a terrible, terrible taste. Some things just don't go together. Uh, As followers of Jesus, I think it's important that we know what we're called to do. But not just what we are called to do, it's also important to know how the things we're called to do fit together. How they go together, because if we are honest, it seems like some of the things Jesus calls us to just don't seem to fit in fact, we might even think that there's tension between them. So, so, for example, in today's passage, James will tell us to do two things, to embrace the world and to reject the world. To embrace the world and to reject the world. Great. Clear to everybody? How, how do these things fit together? Because James says we're called to both be lovingly engaged in the world, loving and serving our neighbors while resisting the influence of the world. And sometimes it can feel like there's a tension 
between these two things? How do they, they fit together? And I think depending on what kind of Christian you are, you kind of veer to one side or the other in which of these that you prioritize. And often more progressive Christians are really concerned about social justice and causes when you be in the world. And then more conservative type Christians are really concerned about being separated from the world and purity. So, so what is it? Is it personal purity and righteousness or is it social concern? Which one? And James says, yes. Being redemptively engaged in the world by being, while being separated from the world. And according to James, both are necessary. And beyond that, they actually go together. In fact, there's no ultimate contradiction between these two. They're not comp- contradictory, but complementary. See, James is all about helping us live in integrated Christian life, where things fit together. In fact, that's James' definition of maturity, is that there's a wholeness, a pureness, an unadulteratedness to the Christian life. That's what a mature Christian looks like. There's a a harmony between how a person views God, how they think, how they feel, what they say, and ultimately what they do. It all fits And today, James defines true devotion. What does it look like to live an integrated Christian life? And he says it's both loving the world and resisting worldliness. And according to him, they're not contradictory. In fact, they're two sides of the same coin. They have to go together. How does that work? Why is that the case? That's what I'm going to try to answer this morning. Before we do that, though, let's pray. Let's go to God and ask for his help in understanding the Scriptures. Father, uh, we want to be attentive to what you have to teach us. Spirit, we believe that you inspired these words. And so now illumine our minds to understand them. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to receive your word humbly, to look at it intently, and apply it effectively. Jesus, for your fame and renown, amen. James says this, verses 26 and 27. I can read it for you too. (laughs) He says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So what's the key word in this passage? I underlined it for you. What's the key word in this passage? Religion. Religious. He uses it three times, twice in verse 26, once in verse 27. Now, we need to be clear on what that means, because in our day, I mean, how would you respond if someone said, hey, you're religious? Kind of like, that's an insult. Remember, someone said to me one time, like, Jeff, you're a religious guy. I was like, no, I'm not. I mean, I'm a pastor, but I'm not a religious pastor, right? I, we kind of take umbrage at that because religious and religion have negative connotations. You think about a religious person, maybe you think someone who's rigid and strict and has a superiority complex and, and looks down on other people. And, and often in popular vernacular, religion means 
things you must do to earn favor with God. Here is everything I have to do to be acceptable before God. And so a religious person is someone who thinks they have earned favor with God, and so they're what? Insufferable, smug, proud, judgmental. Now, if that's what religion is, well, that's in contradiction to what Christianity is, isn't it? Uh, religion is not how we get, our religion is, if it's how we get to God, well, that's not Christianity. Christianity is how God gets to us. That's why we often say around here that religion is spelled what? D-O. Religion is spelled do, what we have to do to be acceptable before God. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, done. It's what Jesus does. The work is finished. But when James says religion, that's not what he's talking about. See, this is the point James is making here. James is not talking about the works we must do to earn a relationship with God. He is talking about the works which flow from a relationship with God. James is not giving us a list of things to do to be acceptable before God. James is saying, you are people who have been saved by grace. You are in a new relationship with God. If the relationship with God is genuine, here are the works that inevitably flow from it. The word here translated religion, it means worship. It means devotion. So think of it this way. James is saying this is what a devoted life, a life yielded to Christ, looks like. In fact, this is what it will inevitably look like. And James gives us three tests. Three tests to see if our faith is genuine. This is a list of non-negotiables. I like the way Calvin describes this. Calvin said, James does not define generally what religion is, but reminds us that religion without the things he mentions is nothing. In other words, James gives us three tests, and he's not saying this is everything it means to be devoted to God, but he's saying if your devotion doesn't have these three elements, it's not devotion at all. These have to be there. And he says three things. If you have a real devotion to God, you'll restrain your tongue, you'll remember the poor, and you'll resist the world. Restrain your tongue, remember the poor, resist the world. And now the rest of James is filling out what that means because apparently those are the three things that his readers really had to understand. So restrain the tongue, that's verse 26. What does James go on to talk about in chapter 3? It's all about the tongue and how to control it. Then verse 27a says, remember the poor. All of chapter 2 is essentially about remembering the poor. And he goes on to talk about the poor more in chapter 5. Then resisting the world, 27b, that's all of chapter 4, what it means to resist the values of the world in the way we live. So that's the rest of James. Let's close in prayer. We're done for the day. No, I want to look more closely at this. These are the things we're talking about, but, but this is what James is doing. He is getting us to the pain point in our Christian life so that we can view ourselves soberly and say, is my faith really genuine? Because if it is, this is what will naturally occur. If I'm sincere, this is the outflow of my life. See, James, like any good preacher, he's getting into our business. And, and, and he starts with, 
receive the word, right? That's the context. This is all about hearing and doing the word of God. And so he starts in verse 19 through 21, and he says we have to receive the word with humility, and we hear that, we're like, yes, James, we have to live under the word. That's so true, James, we should do that. And then he goes on to say in verses 22 through 25, he says, don't just hear the word, do the word. Don't just be a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. And we go, yes, James, my friend so needs to hear that. I wish I'd brought her today. Like, that's just, that's for her. Yes, James, I agree. And then James makes us really uncomfortable in verses 26 to 27. He goes, okay, if you are a doer of the word, what are you actually going to do? You're going to restrain your tongue. You're going to say life-giving, edifying things. You're going to remember the poor. You're going to radically disadvantage yourself for those who are disadvantaged. And you're going to resist worldly thinking, and now we're uncomfortable. This is what true devotion looks like. This is a splash of water we need, especially if we're seasoned Christians. If we've been believers for a while, because one of the easiest errors to fall into is to think I'm a mature Christian because I've read the Bible a lot. I have studied the Bible a lot. I have gone to Bible studies all my life. I can recite the words. I know what Jeff's going to say. I am mature. And one of the easiest things to do is just substitute more study for obedience. Uh, Francis Chan said it this way one time. I'm going to steal it because it was such a good illustration. But he said, imagine you go into your room and you told your daughter, okay, clean your room. And you come back two hours later, the room's still messy, and you go, I, I thought I told you to clean your room. Honey, what happened? She says, Dad, I, I haven't cleaned your room, but you know what I did? I memorized what you told me to do. <laughs> go and clean your room. Okay, great, clean your room. And you return an hour later, and the room's still dirty. Honey, you haven't cleaned your room yet. What's going on? And she says, Dad, I haven't cleaned my room, but, you know, now I'm just meditating on those words. Go, I'm just soaking in that truth. I really want to internalize. Go and clean your room. And you come back an hour later, and the room's still not clean. You say, I thought I told you to clean your room. He goes, Dad, I haven't cleaned my room, but I've gathered a group of friends who also need to clean their room. And now we're just talking. What does it look like practically to clean our rooms? How do we live out? And you're like, it's not that complicated. Just clean your room. And this is the error that we can so easily run into. It's the, our problem often is not the parts of the Bible we don't understand. It's the parts we do. But we insulate ourselves from really thinking about it. That, that's what's uncomfortable about today's passage because James is saying this, that if you have a genuine relationship with God and worship him authentically and devotedly, these things will characterize your life. They will. And if they don't, your devotion to God is phony. Even if you know a lot of the Bible and can win every theological debate, and you cry during worship, and you have these amazing emotional, spiritual experiences, and all of these things, if this is not the fruit of your life, you need to go back to the root and go, what's going on? Okay? So, let's look at this more closely. And I just want to focus on verse 27, 
Because what I love about James is that he puts things together that believers often separate. The fruit of our lives is both personal purity and a social conscience and concern for the vulnerable. And James says, guys, these go together. James says you actually need both. He calls us both to embrace the vulnerable in the world and reject the values of the world. Both embrace the vulnerable and reject the world's values, and these go together in being what Jesus calls salt and light in the world. Salt and light, distinctive and a light to those around us. So let's look at this more closely, starting with embracing the vulnerable. James says this, that what is true devotion? It's to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. A life of genuine devotion to Jesus will exhibit itself in care for the vulnerable. Three questions. Who are these people? What do we do for them? Why do we do it? Okay? Who are they? James says that pure devotion toward God is directed towards the most vulnerable in society. The most vulnerable. And in the ancient world, When you thought most vulnerable, the people who would come to your head are widows and the fatherless. So in James' day, and really in the Old Testament world, a husband was responsible for both material provision and legal protection. So he was the legal protector of his family, of his wife, and the the provider. Here's the deal. When dad dies, the entire family unit is in this very scary situation. They're emotionally devastated. The word widow, hera, it means bereft. It is associated with weeping and mourning. Widows even wore a garment to display their grief. And now we'd expect grief for a family when, when a husband would die. But, but it's way worse than just the emotional devastation. Now there's, there's economic ramifications. You lose the means of support. And now if a man died with debts, creditors would often come to the wife. They would threaten to enslave the children. You see that in 2 Kings 4. Widows often struggled just to maintain their land, to keep their children from starvation. So this is economic disaster. There is social marginalization. They were despised. Widows and orphans were often pushed to the margins of society, and they were often legally disenfranchised. Land was passed down from a dad to male descendants, and so when dad died, families would often go into the state of legal limbo. Whose land is it? How is it going to be allocated? And it was this perfect opportunity for wicked, powerful people to step in, push people off their ancestral land that still happens to widows all the time today, to, to, to traffic these children, to capture them, to sell them into slavery that still happens today to orphans. These are the most helpless people in the society. One of the saddest verses in the Bible, Job 29, Job says of orphans, there was none to help them. Nobody's coming for you. That's who we are talking about here. And so true devotion, true expressions of worship are directed toward the most vulnerable people in society. What does it look like to serve those people? James tells us. He says, towards the most vulnerable, we visit them in their affliction. Now, we can't misunderstand that. 
Because that sounds kind of weak, doesn't it? Visit? Like take a field trip to see widows and orphans? Go and, wow, you look afflicted. See you later. Is that, is that what James is talking about? No, in, in the Bible, when God visits his people, what does he do? He uses his power and his resources to alleviate their distress. He uses his power and his resources. That's what it means for God to visit his people. I love the scene in Luke 7 where Jesus goes into a widow's house and raises her dead son, and the people rejoice, and what do they say? Surely God has visited his people. What does it mean for us to visit the most vulnerable, it means we wield our power and our resources to alleviate their suffering and their oppression, even at great personal cost. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. This is just what the Israelites were expected to do in the Old Testament. That, that's why in the Old Testament, helping the vulnerable, it wasn't just love, it was the law. To do that. There was a legal mandate to care for widows and orphans in this way. Exodus 22, God says, don't mistreat widows and orphans. He says, if you take advantage of them in any way, I'm going to come after you, is what God says. Widows and orphans were to be fed by the community. You see these gleaning and harvesting laws in the Old Testament, where people were forbidden from gleaning to the edge of their land, picking all their grapes. They were always supposed to leave some for the fatherless, for the widow, so that those people in the community would know there's always going to be food for us too. God takes special care to make sure that widows and orphans were included in the life of the community. Deuteronomy 16, he says, when you are celebrating religious festivals, bring in who? The widow, the orphan, the people you would naturally forget about. Take pains to bring them in. And finally, they were to receive equal legal representation. You can't read the prophets and not hear that loud and clear that you should have a special concern to advocate for them because no one else is going to. So community, you do it and make sure it happens. See, this is just an expectation for God's people in the Old and New Testament that they're able to see the people that no one else sees, to hear the cries of the people that no one else hears, and then take it upon themselves, disadvantage themselves for their good. That's what devotion to God looks like, even at great personal cost. That's the what. What's the why? Why is this true devotion? Why would worshiping God lead to that kind of behavior? Well, family, it has everything to do with the kind of God we worship. Who is the God we follow? Do you hear what he says about himself and his word? Psalm 68, what does God say? Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. We serve a God who wants to be known as the defender of the vulnerable. That's, that's his title. That's how he wants to be known. We all want a cool nickname, don't we? Don't you want a cool nickname? Some of you have cool nicknames. I tried to give myself a nickname. I wanted people to call me Hefe. 
In Spanish, it means boss. And it's the best nickname because, one, it sounds like my name, Jeff. And it means boss. And I wanted to be the boss. And so my friends called me heifer. (laughs) Instead, which is a large cow. In fact, they called me a large cow throughout my adolescence. Heifer, there he is. See, you, you can't give yourself a nickname unless you're God. If you're God, you can do that. And God says, here's my nickname. Here's how I want to be known in the world as a father to the fatherless and a protector of widows. As the defender of the most neglected, most oppressed, most vulnerable people. God doesn't just say that, he does it. Israel's consciousness is shaped by what? The exodus. Where Israel at her most vulnerable, when she was widowed, when she was orphaned, when she was desperate, they cry out to God and what does God do? He hears his their cries. He visits his people and he alleviates their distress and brings them out of oppression. And throughout the Old Testament, you hear this refrain, you love the vulnerable. Why? Because God treated you that way. He is the Exodus God who brings you out and delivers you. And so here's what this means. It's really simple, actually, church. Before this is a social issue or a political issue, it's just a theological issue. That if you worship a God whose character is to defend the vulnerable, which by the way, what is the gospel? God coming and rescuing us at our most vulnerable. What does it mean to imitate that kind of God? What does it mean? It's really simple. That you would leverage whatever power and resources you have and pour yourself out like Jesus did for you to alleviate the distress of others. It's what it means. It's what true devotion will entail. So practically, what do you do at Creekside to do that? Well, I love Angelique and Lynn, our our new co-directors of community service, because what they're thinking about all the time are just ways to give you an on-ramp to love a vulnerable person close to you. And and that might be teaming up with Alpha Pregnancy to, to love unborn children and their moms. It might mean joining reading partners to go tutor a kid who might be deprived of some of the resources that they need. It might be working with cross streets at our our food pantry out here, our April showers with the the shower truck. We've got more things in the works. We have a community service guide, okay? We're trying to make it simple. Pick up the guide. It's new today. Look through it. But I just want to reiterate something that Jackie and Kristen were saying earlier in the thing that's close to my heart, and that's that I believe some of you are called to step into the space of foster care and love the most vulnerable children in our community. Um, we have to contextualize this. We have to ask as a, a people of God, okay, who are, who are the, the people that, that are unseen? Who are the people that are unheard? in our context, and then how do we rush in and help? And what do we do? And there are many ways to answer that question, but, but I've felt a burden as I've studied the scriptures that, that foster care is just a natural, inevitable place that the church needs to step in and help. At any given time, there are seven to 8,000 foster kids in the Bay Area. And, and our system just buckles under the weight of the need for foster families. It's huge. 
Here's a stat. This hasn't really changed since 2018. This is when these data were, were taken. Any given year, about 2,000 children are placed into foster care in the Bay Area. Um, in Alameda County, you can see we have more foster children than, than any other county. Um, these kids come in, 50% can be placed in a house. 50%. So you do the math. You need twice as many foster families as we currently have to, to provide a loving home for any kid who's in the system. And, and so here's what happens, family, in Alameda County, is, is this, that there are hundreds of children in our backyard, and look, their situation is dire. It's so dire that the state would step in and temporarily sever the parental bond. That's dire. Think of the trauma a kid goes through leading up to that, and then the trauma of that happening to them. And here's the deal. That kid has to go through all of that trauma, and then it gets exacerbated because they're not able to be placed with a family in their neighborhood. They often have to be shipped out to foster families in the Central Valley. And so now it's not just being removed from your bio family. You lose your neighborhood. You lose your school. You lose your extended family. You lose everything that's familiar to it, and then boom, that's what happens. And, and family, it's, it's so sobering because the reality is if, if these kids don't get successfully reunited with their families, are placed in a loving, stable home, their future is bleak. It's bleak. Here's, here's the data. For, for kids who never get put in a loving, stable home, who get passed around in foster care and then age out of the system, less than 3% earn a college degree, 71% of girls who age out of the foster care system will be pregnant by age 21. 50% develop some kind of substance dependence. 50% are unemployed by the age of 24. 33% of youth become homeless after aging out of the foster care system. In 2013, the FBI conducted a nationwide raid of sex trafficking. Nationwide raid. What they found is that 60% of the victims of sex trafficking come where? Out of foster care. So listen, as Christians, we should care about things like educational inequities and mass incarceration and poverty and homelessness and human trafficking, yes. And for me, the thing that killed me is I want to address all of these things, but so many of those things start in the foster care system. And if we can get upstream and love these kids and their families there, maybe we can see some downstream effects in the society. That's why my wife and I jumped in let me rephrase that. That's why my wife jumped in and dragged me kicking and screaming, and then uh, I'm grateful she did. But, but I would encourage you, as you hear this data, like, listen, not all of you are called to be foster parents, and not all of you can. That's fine. Some of you are, though. Some of you actually are, and you need to pray about it and think about it, and this might be your way of living out James 1.27. Some of you might be called to be on one of these support teams and you can talk to Jackie and you can come alongside because the attrition rate for foster families is huge. Most foster families quit after a year because it's hard. They need a team so they can do it over the long haul. Maybe you will be a court-appointed special advocate, which you can do in Alameda County. You can come alongside a foster kid and advocate for them in that way and come alongside them in addition to a foster family, there are lots of ways to do this. But, but pick up that flyer 
think on this and just ask this question. How is my devotion to Jesus Christ propelling me outward to love vulnerable people? How is it right now? Is there anyone that I am disadvantaging myself to serve? Is there anyone I serve expecting nothing in return at personal cost to me? And if not, don't beat yourself up. Just pray and say, God, I get it. Show me what that is and just take one next step. So embracing the vulnerable is what true devotion looks like. The second half of this, though, is this. As we do this, as we embrace the world's vulnerable, we reject the world's values. James goes on to say this. True devotion is keeping oneself unstained from the world. Now, here's what James does not mean. He does not mean the world is full of icky, icky people and you shouldn't ever get around them. Okay? Some Christians act that way, right? Like you can catch sin from sinners. Just get close enough and they'll defile me, right? That's not what James is talking about because he just said engage the world. You don't have to separate yourself from society. That's not what James is saying. When he talks about the world here, what James is talking about is the dominant world system and way of thinking that just pervades people that don't know Jesus. The Bible says that we live in the present evil age. We live in an age under the dominion of Satan. And the world is constantly producing ideologies and thoughts in conflict with Christ, in conflict with the values of the kingdom that are pulling us away from Jesus, and we have to repudiate that in our head. As we love the world, we reject what the world says is important to embrace. And let me tell you, you have to keep both of these together to make any impact on the people around you. You have to love the people of the world by rejecting the dominant ideology of the world. How do those things fit, you might ask? Well, I'm glad you asked. I got like five minutes, okay? And I'm going to show you very quickly. Here, if you resist worldliness, if you reject the values of the world, it ensures that you engage God's way. God has a way he wants us to engage the vulnerable, and it will require us to reject worldly values. Do you know what kind of worldliness that James readers were struggling with? You can go to chapter 4. Do you know what it was? The worldliness they were struggling with was greed, covetousness, and also this thought that I get to plan out my life. I get to decide what my future looks like. I have all these dreams and I can go pursue them and I don't want God to interrupt me and my plans. So what did it look like for James here is to be worldly? Greedy for more money, climbing the economic ladder, living out their dream of what life was supposed to be like with God never interrupting their plans. Now, no one does that today, right? This is just irrelevant for us as here. No, it's totally relevant. The, the worldliness that James readers wanted to succumb to was this, that I can get everything I want in life and follow Jesus. And if we're going to really be long-suffering and faithful in the way we serve people, we've got to reject that. Because let me tell you, our culture is no different than that. 
It's live the American dream, climb the ladder, you do you, you have your own vision of success, you get everything you want, and you can be socially conscious. It's both, right? And if you, if you post the right opinions on social media and, and, and put the right bumper stickers on your car, you can appear as righteous, you can have the right opinions, you can get cultural plaudits, everyone will pat you on the back for how righteous you are, and all you have to do is be seen as the right kind of person and go do whatever you want. That's the temptation today. Whereas biblical righteousness would mean you're not, you don't care how anyone else reacts. Who are you doing it for? You're doing it out of response to God. So you don't need to be seen in serving others. You can do it in total obscurity because it's out of conscience towards God. And you'll be long-suffering. You'll keep at it even when it's hard, even when it's difficult. And it also means that you are allowing God to kill some of your dreams and desires for your life for the sake of serving other people. You see how you have to reject worldly thinking to engage the world God's way? My wife is the prophetic witness of this in my life. Because she is willing to let dreams die to love people well. And I have a lot harder time with that. I want to be liked, have people be impressed with me, get everything I want in life, and people go, wow, Jeff, you're a foster parent. You really love the vulnerable, right? I want it all. And, and, and honestly, my wife just floors me with this because she will suffer so that other people can be relieved of suffering. And you never are going to see it. You're never going to see her spending weeks in the hospital with Omari as she did this last year to help diagnose all of these issues and go to therapy after therapy for him on Zoom. And I would always try to get out of doing it. And then she would make me go to Zoom therapy. And I'm like, darn it, right. And, and, and disadvantage herself up and her life. And, and I've seen her make that sacrifice over the last year. And, and the reality is, to help a kid at all, someone's got to do that, right? There's no system that can do that for the world. It's going to be people disadvantaging themselves for people. And so she continually convicts me that it's going to be costly and we have to remember why we're doing it, who we're doing it for, because it's going to interrupt our lives. It might even blow up our lives in certain ways if we're actually going to lean into this and be kingdom-oriented. Next, resisting worldliness ensures that our influence goes in the right direction. Our influence goes in the right direction. It's popular to have a social conscience now, isn't it? Especially in a place like the Bay Area, everyone wants to be socially conscious. But the reality is, the kingdom reality is this, the values of the kingdom are going to resonate with certain cultural values and they're going to contradict certain cultural values no matter what culture you're in. And so if you don't remember whose you are as you go to serve, there is tremendous pressure to just accommodate everything you do so you look just like the culture. But Jesus says in Matthew 5 that we're called to be salt and light. Light means we display God's goodness to the world, but you know what salt is? It's our distinctiveness from the world. That as we serve, we don't look like the world. In fact, we value things in ways the world doesn't. We're actually separated from the world for the world 
to give the world a witness of an alternative kingdom and what it could look like. And it's so fascinating to study the early church because they looked nothing like their culture and yet they were actively serving and they were hated for it. Right, you look at the early church, you see ethnic harmony among groups that used to fight and a concern for ethnic harmony. You see a radical concern for the poor and people sacrificing their lives for the poor in extreme ways. You see a concern for justice and the downtrodden. You see a concern for the unborn and children who would be exposed or infanticide and the church would go care for those people. And you see radical sexual purity in the early church. They said their beds are closed to all, was the early church. Their homes were open to everyone. Their beds were shut. It was one man, one woman, or a call to celibacy. That's it. And they looked crazy in the culture. Now, what paradigm is that? Radical concern for the poor, ethnic harmony, love for the sojourner, love for the unborn, sexual purity. What political party does that fit into today? It doesn't fit. It never fits. And so whether you're in conservative culture as a Christian or a progressive culture, it doesn't fit. Because you have a different king and you're living in a different kingdom with values that transcend all of it. And so our influence only goes in the right direction when we remember whose kingdom we're a part of. Otherwise, you jump into the world and guess what you end up looking like? The world. Doing exactly what the world's already doing. And then there's no witness to the values of the kingdom. And here's the deal. If you live this way, here's another thing that's going to happen. You're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. Here's why. You're disadvantaging yourself for the vulnerable. That means you're giving up some of your dreams, some of what you want. And if you're maintaining a faithful Christian witness, you're just going to feel the discord between you and the world. You don't even have to say anything. You just know that you're living in a different kingdom, following a different king. Here's the thing. Christians who prioritize purity above all else and being distinct from the world, what happens is they retreat, right, from the world. They form fortress churches where we have to believe the same things and act the same way. Purity. And guess who you never interact with? The world. So you never suffer. And churches that go, we want to be totally engaged in the world, but eh, we don't really want to talk about the points where we conflict with the world or, or where the kingdoms they conflict with the dominant values. You know what they do? They assimilate. And who do they look like? The world. And so no one's offended by them because it's just doing exactly what the world would do and throwing Jesus on top. And so they don't suffer either. But if you redemptively engage in the world, while holding your Christian convictions, you're going to talk to people and go, wow, there's a discord here. And you're going to feel that alienation. You might be ostracized because of how you think, just how you think about the way God has designed things to work, how he's designed sex to work, how he's designed reality to work. It will put you in conflict. And so you have to be long-suffering, and that's where we have to remember the example of Jesus. Jesus joins both of these perfectly. You look at the life of Jesus, did anyone care more about the, the downtrodden or the oppressed than Jesus? No. 
Jesus is the most compassionate man who ever walked the face of the planet. Was any more one more concerned with personal purity and righteousness than Jesus? No. He was perfectly pure in all his thinking. And, and, and yet that is why Jesus changed the world is because he was both of those things. And that's the gospel, isn't it? That Jesus looked down at us in our sin and he was so compassionate that he died to bring us out of it. And he's so pure that his own blood and life can purify us and make us his. It's both. Do you see that? And, and living consistently with the gospel is just living as salt and light in that way. That's true devotion. Let's pray. So Jesus, would you, would you make us those kind of people? Lord, people who are hard to pin down. What are their values? Why do they do that? Jesus, would we look distinct? Would we not be easily labeled, God, because we follow a king who transcends all of these earthly fallen labels? Would we live as citizens of your kingdom and would we be known as people who have a deep desire to be in, inwardly pure and righteous in our thinking and living? And outwardly, would we be known as people who give away our lives with joy for the sake of those who are downtrodden and oppressed. We need wisdom, God, in these things. Would you show us how? In your name, amen.